Section one of An Inland Voyage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Inland Voyage by Robert Louis Stevenson. Section one Antwerp to Baum. We made a great stir in Antwerp docks. A stevedore and a lot of dock porters took up the two canoes and ran with them for the slip. A crowd of children followed, cheering. The cigarette went off in a splash and a bubble of small breaking water. Next moment the Arethusa was after her. A steamer was coming down, men on the paddle-box shouted hoarse warnings, the stevedore and his porters were bawling from the quay. But in a stroke or two the canoes were away out in the middle of the Scheldt, and all steamers and stevedores and other longshore vanities were left behind. The sun shone brightly. The tide was making four jolly miles an hour. The wind blew steadily, with occasional squalls. For my part I had never been in a canoe under sail in my life, and my first experiment out in the middle of this big river was not made without some trepidation. What would happen when the wind first caught my little canvas? I suppose it was almost as trying a venture into the regions of the unknown as to publish a first book, or to marry. But my doubts were not of long duration, and in five minutes you will not be surprised to learn that I had tied my sheet. I own I was a little struck by this circumstance myself. Of course, in company with the rest of my fellow-men, I had always tied the sheet in a sailing-boat, but in so little and crank a concern as a canoe, and with these charging squalls, I was not prepared to find myself follow the same principle." and it inspired me with some contemptuous views of our regard for life. It is certainly easier to smoke with the sheet fastened, but I had never before weighed a comfortable pipe of tobacco against an obvious risk, and gravely elected for the comfortable pipe. It is a commonplace that we cannot answer for ourselves before we have been tried, but it is not so common a reflection, and surely more consoling, that we usually find ourselves a great deal braver and better than we thought. I believe this is every one's experience, but an apprehension that they may belie themselves in the future prevents mankind from trumpeting this cheerful sentiment abroad. I wish sincerely, for it would have saved me much trouble, there had been some one to put me in a good heart about life when I was younger, to tell me how dangers are most portentous on a distant sight, and how the good in a man's spirit will not suffer itself to be overlaid, and rarely or never deserts him in the hour of need. But we are all for tootling on the sentimental flute in literature, and not a man among us will go to the head of the march to sound the heady drums. It was agreeable upon the river. A barge or two went past, laden with hay. Reeds and willows bordered the stream, and cattle and grey venerable horses came and hung their mild heads over the embankment. Here and there was a pleasant village among trees, with a noisy shipping-yard, here and there a villa in a lawn. The wind served us well up the Scheldt and thereafter up the Rupel, and we were running pretty free when we began to sight the brickyards of Baum, lying for a long way on the right bank of the river. The left bank was still green and pastoral, with alleys of trees along the embankment, and here and there a flight of steps to serve a ferry, where perhaps there sat a woman with her elbows on her knees, or an old gentleman with a staff and silver spectacles. But Bohm and its brickyards grew smokier and shabbier with every minute, until a great church with a clock, and a wooden bridge over the river, 
indicated the central quarters of the town. Boom is not a nice place, and is only remarkable for one thing, that the majority of the inhabitants have a private opinion that they can speak English, which is not justified by fact. This gave a kind of haziness to our intercourse. As for the Hotel de la Navigation, I think it is the worst feature of the place. It boasts of a sanded parlour, with a bar at one end, looking on the street, and another sanded parlour, darker and colder, with an empty bird-cage and a tricolour subscription-box by way of sole adornment, where we made shift to dine in the company of three uncommunicative engineer apprentices and a silent bagman. The food, as usual in Belgium, was of a nondescript occasional character. Indeed, I have never been able to detect anything in the nature of a meal among this pleasing people. They seem to peck and trifle with viands all day long in an amateur spirit, tentatively French, truly German, and somehow falling between the two. The empty bird-cage, swept and garnished, and with no trace of the old piping favourite, save where two wires had been pushed apart to hold its lump of sugar, carried with it a sort of graveyard cheer. The engineer apprentices would have nothing to say to us, nor indeed to the bagman, but talked low and sparingly to one another, or raked us in the gaslight with a gleam of spectacles. For, though handsome lads, they were all, in the Scots phrase, barnacled. There was an English maid in the hotel, who had been long enough out of England to pick up all sorts of funny idioms, and all sorts of curious foreign ways, which need not here be specified. She spoke to us very fluently in her jargon, asked us information as to the manners of the present day in England, and obligingly corrected us when we attempted to answer. But as we were dealing with a woman, perhaps our information was not so much thrown away as it appeared. The sex likes to pick up knowledge, and yet preserve its superiority. It is good policy, and almost necessary in the circumstances. If a man finds a woman admire him, were it only for his acquaintance with geography, he will begin at once to build upon the admiration. It is only by unintermittent snubbing that the pretty ones can keep us in our place. Men, as Miss Howe or Miss Harlow would have said, are such encroachers. For my part, I am body and soul with the women, and after a well-married couple there is nothing so beautiful in the world as the myth of the divine huntress. It is no use for a man to take to the woods. We know him. St. Anthony tried the same thing long ago, and had a pitiful time of it by all accounts. But there is this about some women, which overtops the best gymnosophist among men, that they suffice to themselves, and can walk in a high and cold zone with the countenance of any trousered being. I declare, although the reverse of a professed ascetic, I am more obliged to women for this ideal than I should be to the majority of them, or indeed to any but one, for a spontaneous kiss. There is nothing so encouraging as the spectacle of self-sufficiency. And when I think of the slim and lovely maidens, running the woods all night to the note of Diana's horn, moving among the old oaks, as fancy-free as they are, things of the forest and the starlight, not touched by the commotion of man's hot and turbid life, although there are plenty other ideals that I should prefer, I find my heart beat at the thought of this one. "'Tis to fail in life, but to fail with what grace? That is not lost, which is not regretted. And where—' Here slips out the mail. 
where would be much of the glory of inspiring love, if there were no contempt to overcome? End of section one. Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org, on Saturday, October 12, 2013, in San Diego, California.